We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What do you think about the Laker team now? You follow the box scores of the games every day? Just the Lakers. You're kidding. That is really a compliment. I was pleased to see you smile at the top of our show because once the game starts, you have a game face. You don't smile much out there. I don't think you have to do things for money anymore. Correct. What's up, Laker fans? Welcome to the Laker Film Room Podcast, brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm Pete, joined by Darius and Mike. And the Eastern Conference Finals continued kind of a peculiar pattern. Uh, all four games so far, the winning team has been up by 20-plus, and that happened rather early. Boston jumped all over the Miami Heat, and that game was over pretty quickly. Mike, you've rightfully brought up, uh, and even in the last pod, kind of your concern about Miami's half-court offense. And we saw that in to start this game. It was 18-1. to 1. They scored one point in the first eight and a half minutes. And there are three things that stand out to me on that front. Number one, the most important thing in this series is Jimmy Butler's health in terms of Miami's ability to, to win it. He does not look like himself. He missed several shots that are kind of Jimmy Butler shots. And I don't mean to discredit Boston's defense or anything. It's just he didn't look particularly good. Second, I, I thought that the way that Boston defended them, I've been a bit surprised. They've been really reliant on their drop coverages. They're so renowned for their ability to switch, but that's not really how they've defended them. And then third, I think Robert Williams makes a big difference in this series. So this was a game that was over very quickly, Mike, but I think that that overall theme of like Miami's half-court offense, do they have enough? I think that kind of reared its ugly head in this game. Yeah, Pete, I was recently told a story about an individual who just really took things seriously. And you and the Goldfarb thing, man, I swear. <laughs> and, this, and this guy, I mean, when he would get to a chessboard, it was <sighs> business, okay? He was Mike, not messing around. This guy, his name is Jonathan Goldfarb, who I, I by the way, has not reached out to me yet. He has and not reached out yet. We're going to reach him. Darius, how many, how many Goldfarb texts <laughs> have we received in the freaking text thread over the last 24 hours? Mike loves this. We'll, we'll delve deeper, deeper into this. Oh, apologies. Jeez. Uh, but no, no. this is what he that was who I thought of when Boston went up 18 to one. I, I, mean, I know that's you texted us. Yeah, this was a blitzkrieg and a gold farb, really. I mean, it, it's really what it was. And it was impressive. But I so Pete, the first thing I want to do here for your own sanity, I do want to partially dismiss this game uh, because this this to me was the one where. A little bit like Golden State um, at Memphis, where they just they just didn't bring the same amount of energy. 
Uh, and now there are reasons for it. And these are the reasons I picked Boston in the series. So I'm not I'm also not dismissing that. But like 18 to one. Come on. Like that was just right. ridiculous. But here's the here's the problem, I think, for Miami. And it's not just Robert Williams, but it's that Robert Williams, when he's on the court, Bam doesn't even seem to look towards the rim. Like Bam went straight back to being the Bam that he was in the first couple of games when Williams played, as opposed to game three, you know, where he was really able to go off. And so that's that's one thing. And then Marcus, like I also the injury thing, though, and Butler not being there. Well, Marcus Smart didn't play. You know, and then like so many guys have been banged up in this series that I think it's it stinks, also it's man. been basically evened out. And yeah. I, I'm just thankful that it's now 2-2 and neither team has the excuse anymore, right, of the, yeah, this is the game where they're playing harder or they're more intense. Like we're game five, hopefully we'll get a good basketball game, Darius. Hopefully. Game four was the only game that I thought was bad. The other games were interesting in various ways and, you know, comebacks and everything else which sort of keep us engaged pete you brought up the half court offense tyler hero being not available i hadn't heard that he was injured before news abruptly comes it's like hey tyler hero he's gonna sit and he's an important piece to their half court offense now Some may say that that's one of the flaws of a Miami Heat team. Like if you're overly dependent on Tyler Hero, then maybe you're not as good, right? Like maybe you're not a championship team if you if you need him. But but it comes back to the idea of slotting and what you ask players to do and what they're good at. And Tyler Hero is a good half court scorer. He's a three-level guy. He can shoot off of the dribble, off of pull-ups. You can't go under on him. He's got range beyond the three-point line. And so there's a lot of ways he can help grease your half-court offense. And I thought he would have become even more important when Jimmy looked the way that he looked, right? And, And so there were just a bunch of times where it's great to have a movement shooter like Struess and... But not having that second side guy like Hero, I thought, really showed up because Lowry is still sort of like 75 percent, 70 percent. Like he's doing some hit ahead stuff. And if you duck under on screens, he might shoot the pull up. Um, And he's got some juice in terms of trying to like get into the lane and then maybe draw a foul to get to the free throw line. But he's not the guy who's going to carry your offense, particularly when Jimmy is out. And that's why I thought they tried to replicate the game three stuff. They went to Bam early and his first possession, he he had Horford isolated around the elbow and he jab stepped in order to try to get Horford off, but Horford actually didn't sag off. He stepped into him a little bit more. And then when Bam was going to rip through, Horford just poked the ball away and got a turnover. Yeah. The next possession that they went to Bam, he sort of had the ball in isolation again. I think he shook a little bit and then shot a pull-up jumper and then he missed. And then after that, I thought he was sort of like, my offense isn't there today, but it was so early for him to sort of make that determination. And I thought that was another key part of things about why Miami just like, where's your offense going to come from? No hero, Jimmy banged up and bam is going to go back to facilitator mode. It's just like, well, you're out of luck at that point. Yeah, I think that that is kind of 
that kind of exemplifies Miami's overall performance as well in that I, you know, in rewatching the, the shots that they got, they got decent shots in part because uh, Boston is conceding in the drop coverage. Like, hey, we're going to put back pressure on Strews, back pressure on Lowry the best we can, and we're going to give them that pull-up jumper. And either you make it or you don't. And remember that game four in the Philadelphia series, Miami-Philly. That was another game where it's like, they just can't make a jumper. Now they got way a lot more open shots against Philly in that game than they did against Boston. But that whole idea of like, well, our offense isn't there and you know, we're just going to pack it up and and kind of conserve energy until the next game. Like I thought that really showed up with their because they started out like 0 for 14 and about half of those were pretty good shots. About two or three were clear possessions that Boston won where it's like Kyle Lowry's isolating with four seconds left on the clock. Like that's not the type of player that he is. And I, I hear you on the hero part, but they scored their starters scored what 16, 18 points. 18 it was points the, lowest, the whole night. Yes. Yeah. The lowest since like 1971 in a playoff game. So I thought that that start kind of along with kind of the psychological components of when they, when they got to Boston, Mike, I think that the usual thought process in these types of series is let's get a split. Like if we can get too great, but I, I saw a great deal of like, okay, like we don't have it tonight. Let's kind of pack it in. And there was yeah. never really that push that you see that when Boston goes down by 20, they're always going to fight. They've got a lot more juice in their legs than Miami does. Yeah. And usually the guys that you see that start, with are the vets in it in this case it was it was jimmy and kyle lowry and both of them are carrying injuries so that part of it is understandable but it's it gets me back to the bam part of this where he's kind of a he's one of the few universally accepted players who doesn't really seem to take a lot of crit, uh, critique you know there aren't a lot of people really uh, subjecting bam to uh, to having to meet a certain standard and it did make me think of what would happen if anthony davis had a game yeah. like that in the postseason. And, you know, it's not especially because it's not the first time this postseason where Bam has basically had a no show and he was 14 and a half points. Uh, sorry, his averages this postseason are 14 and a half points and 7.6 boards. Now, we can get into advanced stats. Some of those, they they can tell you some different things, but that's that's from a 19 and 10 guy, you know, who they really rely on. And it's just a it's not just the lack of production. It's sort of the lack of ownership of what he is as a guy who a lot of people voted for all NBA 13, you know, this year, or at least somewhere in that mix. And some people voted for defensive player of the year. And some people didn't vote for him for DPOI just because of the games that he missed, but he's in that conversation. So that that's the one thing for me, if I'm Miami, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm thinking, all right, bam, we need to hit, we need to have you hit a certain hallmark every night. Now you're that guy now. And if you're not impacting the game scoring wise, then you damn sure better impact the game more on the other end. And this game is a tough one to judge him upon because of all the factors that we've just mentioned. But I, I just I think that he's got to be held to a higher standard. The guy that I thought about was like Grizzlies Marcus Gasol, which is like an interesting comp for Bam. But that's sort of like, hey, everyone loved Marcus Gasol, right? Like you're not going to diss Marcus Gasol. Everyone loves him. And he does all of this. He's like an all court player. He helped you in so many ways. But there were plenty of times where the Grizzlies probably would have been like, damn it, man, like I wish I could get 18 points from Marcus Gasol because he's capable of that yeah. on any given night. And on a night like last night, Miami needed it. And I think that's why it stood out even more. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk about kind of how Boston has managed to keep Bama under wraps, especially in this last game. 
We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So again, the thing that has really surprised me about Boston's defense is how little they've switched and how reliant they've been on drop coverages throughout this series. And I think part of that is because of Bam, and I think part of that is because of Bam's Game 3 performance. They did switch a bit more in that Game 3, and what happened, Bam was very assertive, and, and Mike, you're spot on with this idea that like, if you're going to be in this, these conversations, these are the types of games that you got to show up in, and... But a lot of BAM's performances have been low shot attempt games. And I think that one thing that we don't realize that I'd love to kind of illuminate a little bit more is how much a defensive coverage can impact a player, especially a big player's shot attempts. Take Al Horford, for example. Remember the big games that he had against Milwaukee? He had like a 26-pointer, another one that was a 30-pointer, and he was getting a ton of shots. If you look at Horford's shot attempts in this series, they're all very low, and it's a function of how Miami is defending them. They're not conceding those open jumpers to Horford, and so he's not taking them. Horford's one of those guys that he's going to make the right play pretty much every single time, and so if you leave him open, he's going to take the shot and he's skilled enough to where he's going to hit that but if not he's going to keep the ball moving and find the advantage that's elsewhere boston has made a conscious decision to pack the paint and be like we're going to make you beat us on jump shots including you bam Adebayo. and when we have robert williams there and we have al horford we have the size around the basket to be able to take that away when they're switching a lot of Bam's success in game three was like, oh, I'm going to go over the top of Marcus Smart. I'm going to go over the top of even a guy like Grant Williams, of these guys who are shorter than me, that I can, that's at least my advantage. Bam isn't a super physical player, but he isn't a good athlete, and he's a guy who can go over the top. And so by making that switch that is so different than that identity that we've assigned to Boston regarding their defense going to those drops has allowed them to protect the paint in a way that I think really neutralizes Bam. And that combined with Jimmy not looking his best, like, and a guy like Hero being out, I think is a is a, a really smart recipe for how to neutralize Miami. That's a little bit different than I would have expected before the series. Here, the thing about Bam is, are we classifying him as a a real star, you know, in, in even approaching superstar, or a really, really, really good, impactful role player? And and that's where, so some guys, you don't, whatever the defense is, and this is again, bringing Davis back into this, there's no excuse. Like you got to find a way to be productive sure. with this. And if they're, and if, and so I guess that's basically what my point is here. And that Bam is more in that Rudy Gobert classification 
as a, as you can play a certain type of defense. And if you take away the lobs and you take away the offensive rebounds, then all of a sudden he's not able to do quite as much there. Now, Bam, you can't really take out of the defensive end at all. Whereas Rudy, you can at least pull out to the perimeter. So he's always going to have a value on the court. And, and so that's, I don't, I don't mean this to turn into the Bam um, critique for me. It's just the, I think it's important to recognize that, um, that difference between somebody like him and AD where Bam does have a jump shot and he does have some off the dribble stuff, but he doesn't have it to the, to the degree that Davis does. And that just to me, I guess, so here's the larger point for me, or at least the question to you guys, that to me limits Miami's ceiling. some. whereas, whereas if you're, because Tyler hero, he's had some moments, but he's also a guy who can shoot you out of a game and isn't always going to be able to deliver in a, in a certain way to lead an offense. Kyle Lowry at this stage of his career, you know, is another one. So if Bam isn't capable of doing something against whatever the defense is, then that to me is the ceiling limiter. I agree. And that is why Jimmy Butler is so important in that. I think that the way I've viewed Miami's offense in particular is they have a legitimate playoff go-to guy. And up until he's- I'm saying you need two though. See, I, I think there are a couple of ways to do it. I generally agree that that is like the most tried and true. I think the other way is to have like one guy where it's like, he can hit tough shots. You can go to him and then several guys who can get bucket. And that's part of why I like Miami is that second guy is less important to me because they've got five or six guys that can contribute off of a variety of different actions. And if you've got four or five of them on the court at the same t- time, then you can still get it done. But I, I think Mike makes a good point, D, like that idea of being a legit number two, a guy that they're in a drop, they're in a switch, they're blitz it, whatever they're doing defensively, you can be a reliable producer of offense. And Bam has not been that. And I think that the fluctuation in this series in shot attempts and points from all three other games versus that game three, and it includes game one where Robert Williams did not play, although Williams does have a big impact on this. Where do you stand on that? That idea of like having two guys that you know can get theirs no matter what, LeBron and AD type of thing, versus like one go-to guy and then that more responsibility distributed amongst more players. Oh man, well, so that's a deep question with like a lot of layers because you can have heliocentric offenses like what Dallas does and that's the one guy, right? And depending on what type of actions you're relying on so heavily, then if you neutralize that one guy, then you're out of luck, regardless of how great that one guy. And even there are times where you can let that one guy go off or not let, but that one guy just goes off. But if you do a good enough job shutting everyone else down, then you're still in business. I look at a guy like Bam and that idea of a second scorer and I'm, just going to tell you like i'm going to go back to hero some here because look at miami's so i was just looking at the heat's usage guys they're high usage guys so bam's usage in the postseason is under 20 percent. wow and that's the average for a player is 20 percent. yeah like i mean if you divide like you know usage is going to be 100 you divide by five average would be 20 most all-star level guys who are like facilitators and ball handler types, they're going to be around 30, which is where Jimmy Butler's been. During the regular season, Jimmy was at 26.5. Yeah. Hero led the heat during the regular season in usage rate. He was at 28.6. When you go to the postseason, Jimmy's at 29.5. Hero's 
at 26, and then Oladipo 22.8, and then you get down to like guys like low minute guys, Caleb Martin, Deadman. Even Deadman has a higher usage rate than Bam. Wow. But Deadman's in the 18s as well. This is a function of what do you want Bam to be? And how are you going to create those opportunities for him, right? I I happen to think one of the reasons why Bam's usage is down is because he doesn't have a setup guy like Lowry. And Bam as a finisher is much more of a, like, he's not an ISO player. And so you think of a guy like AD. AD is a great finisher. And when he's at his best, someone else is setting him up because he is just such a lethal player. But the reason why he's an all NBA player is because he's also just a fantastic shot creator for himself and he can play in isolation a bunch. And that's what makes his usage so high. AD, when LeBron and AD are both humming, they're both going to be like 30, 32 usage guys. AD is one of the few guys his size in the league that can get like 25 plus shots in a game. Like most guys his size can't even get that many shots up. Embiid. Jokic could if he wanted to. That's not really his mindset, but he could. If Jokic said, you know what, I'm scoring 50 tonight. Oh, and he he, does that sometimes, right? Like there's sometimes where he's like, I've got the mismatch and I'm the guy who's going to score. But like the list is is fairly short. It definitely is. And so I don't think Bam's ever going to be on that list because that's not his mentality and that's not his approach. It's it's, it's also not the type of offense that the Heat run. The fact that Jimmy didn't even have a 30 usage rate during the regular season tells you a lot about the style of offense that the Heat plays. It's a lot of dribble pitch. It's a lot of handoffs. It's it's just a lot of like motion and leveraging shooting in order to attack the basket, right? It's it's and it's a lot in transition. And so one of the ways that I thought Bam was really good in game three is that he hunted shots in transition in coordination Mm, with Lowry. That was super important, but the heat weren't getting enough stops. And so they were playing in the half court more. And that's a, that's a downward spiral for them in, in very specific ways, because we, we started out the pod talking about their struggles in the half court. Well, guess what? If, you're forced into more half-court possessions, then you're going to miss more, then Boston is going to get a running start at you, and then they're going to score more, and now you're taking the ball out of the basket more, and now you're in the half-court more. And that domino against you really gave the Heat problems, I thought. And, and, And so... I still think that your solution, Pete, from the last pod about, like, Miami's going to win this on defense... Like they definitely are, but the defense and the offense need to work together for them in in very similar ways that I think the 1920 Lakers did like in their run to the championship. Miami's going to need to be a 20 percent transition team if they're going to win. And if that dips to like 15 percent or under that, they're going to have problems. And this that just gets right back to to me why it's so tough to win a series against a really good team, you know, playing like that, because you have to the game, the game script has to follow a certain path, you know, for you to win it. And if you have so hero, I kind of group into you guys have heard my thoughts about Lou Williams in the past, but he's trending more towards that uh, a little bit, because if you've got a guy or Jamal Crawford, like the guys that, that are winning the six man of the year trophy and you're averaging in his playoff career right now, you know, 14 points on 41% from the field, 
right, in 30 minutes, and then the assist to turnover is three to two, that's just not going to cut it. It's just not efficient enough offense to really be carrying it uh, to an extent against a good team. If you're if your number one's Jokic or LeBron or Luka, you know, then then I, I still don't know if that's a good enough number two. And I think this playoffs has has shown us that to an extent. And that doesn't mean Miami can't still win the series with smarts and defense and uh, transition. But uh, I, I still think that model that we've seen in the past is is uh, is a little bit more dependable, I, I suppose, is the way I would put it. So, by the way, we haven't talked a lot of Lakers lately for mm-hmm. obvious reasons but there has been some reporting about the coaching search and i'm very curious for what you guys have been following what has stood out the most so let's hit that when we get back all right pete let's let's give you the first toss here you're usually tossing to one of us what is the what how, where's your mind right now as to what you've seen from all these various reports about the coaching search narrowing so i can tell you more where my heart is right now I I'll take it that feels too. like yeah it feels like Ham is the right guy. I don't have a particularly eloquent argument for it. It just seems I don't know, just seems like that's that's the way that the the winds are blowing. We'll see how like if we are in the final stages of it or not, but the three candidates reportedly are uh Darvin Ham, Terry Stotts and Kenny Atkinson. I would love to come away with a couple of those guys, like with whomever doesn't get the head coaching gig, I think would be a good assistant. Um, I'm very curious, Darius, you always talk about these coaching meetings as being uh, like Intel sessions as well. Like you're learning about where guys stand, what they think, how, you know, and it's all, even if, if it's something that doesn't pay off until later down the line, I've also been like of the, the coaches that are available, like the coaching search so far, I've been like, yeah, those are totally reasonable guys to be interviewing right now. I've, I've thought that there's been a certain degree of hysterics about like, oh, this former coach or or that. And like, we'll see who, you know, we may end up with with someone that that fits on that list. But so far, the the list is and the process of it, I think, has been good. And Ham is the guy that feels right. But I also think that assistant coaches are difficult to evaluate on some level because it's such a different job because a good assistant coach by their very nature is helping execute someone else's vision. And it's very different when it's your vision that's looking to be implemented. And so I, I, you know, I, uh, there, there are some things about ham that I, that I know that are uh, specific to him D, but, but overall, like I, We'll see, but I, he feels like the right guy and the, the search has, has seemed okay to me. So I agree with that. One thing that you said there about not knowing a lot about assistant coaches and implementing the vision of the head coach, that just reminded me of something. So just a quick sidebar here. I remember when um, Doc Rivers was doing, um, our good friend Glenn, he, he was <laughs> doing a defense of his record in a lot of ways, this was a few weeks ago, back when Philly was still playing. Yeah, you have to be more specific when describing times where he's defended his record. That's happened a few times. So they were asking about the 3-1. So this was probably mm-hmm. in the first round, right? Because there was a prospect of Toronto coming back on them. And mm, Doc right, right. was talking about, oh, all the times that I've lost 3-1, we'll go back and look at my record. Like, yeah, that team was trash and these dudes didn't even play very well. And like no one even expected us to do anything. And then there was a time where he had mentioned the collapse 
in I think it was the bubble when Ty Lue was still his assistant coach and they were w- and and they were with the Clippers. Yeah. And there was this thought about, oh, well, you know, well, Ty Lue, like he was sitting right there next to me. And I always thought that that was a funny little thing, like uh, like a little I would have throw someone else under the bus for no reason, because that's your assistant coach. Like so he's lame. not there to coach the team. He's your assistant and you're the head coach. So just own up and own the fact that you were trash in too many postseasons. And so how many of Ty Lue's buddies do you think sent him that clip? You know? Oh man! If if I was one of his buddies, I would have been throwing him the gold farm text, like in the chat. <laughs> you know That's- what's amazing? I resisted the urge when Darius said he was thinking of something. You know, he had an anecdote. I was about to pipe in with a gold farm reference. <laughs> And I and I didn't even need to because he still worked it in at the end. And that's my man. This is our growing chemistry, Mike. You know, lobs to each other. So back to the Lakers search. I agree with you on process. It's also an interesting thing to me. Like these aren't the sexiest of candidates. Like when you go back to when the Lakers ended up hiring Vogel, it's sort of like when you pick in a draft and the top pick is Anthony Bennett. And I'm not comparing any of the head coaching guys to Anthony Bennett, but I'm just saying, or there was the year that like Mike Miller won rookie of the year. It's just like, oh, okay. Like Mike Miller, very good player, played in the league for 12, 15 years, like great. And then there are some years where it's like, oh, like, look, it's Cade Cunningham and all of these dudes who were at the top of the draft. And it's just like, okay, well, there's like four number one picks here. And so- The year that the Lakers hired Vogel, I thought Vogel was an excellent coach. And then, but Ty Lue was available that year and Monty Williams was available that that year. And, and the Lakers interviewed all of those guys. And this year, I don't feel like there is that sexy name, Mike. Yeah. And so it's just like, oh, Kenny Atkinson, good basketball coach. Very good basketball coach, right? Um, and I feel like w- on some levels, I find myself falling back into that idea that we talked about on a pod like a month ago about the candidates and it's just like the sexy candidate and like the big name and 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 who do you want out of the three guys that that are left i i agree with pete like i think ham feels like the right guy um he's got a profile that i think works in this league as as a head coach and like that leader of men idea of like okay well you were a role player and you're like a fiery guy and and you have history within the league and there's just that inherent knowing of what it's like to like be in the trenches as as a player that you then bring to that equation and he's paid a lot of dues in this league so so I'm I like his profile I'd love to hear him talk a little bit more so that I had a better sense of like where his head is at around a lot of different topics but a lot of times you don't get that until the guy is hired right like we're not in the room so based off the reporting that I'm hearing it sounds like he's been impressive and that's great but I agree with what you're saying Pete that it would be nice to maybe get more than one of these guys to round out the staff too well the first thing about Darvin Ham since I think that's where that's just where we've centered this a bit I've also heard really good things about how these meetings and interviews and such have gone I have a personal relationship or, or uh, personal might be the wrong word, professional relationship that is extended to sort of the, Oh, Hey, you know, every time, because Darwin, of course was an assistant and I was working for the team. And at the time, now I need to fact check this with Joey Ramirez, uh, our terrific does everything uh, Lakers digital and dot um, mm-hmm. com and et cetera. But I always used to do before I was doing the sideline job, I would do the assistant coach scouting report preview of the game. And 
they, I, Phil Jackson let me do it with each one of his assistants and I, and the assistants who I don't think talk all the time on every team were, seemed to be happy to do it. And I would sit down with them and just ask them, you know, several questions about the upcoming game. We would do it after shoot around back when the team actually had shoot around every day. And then we would put it up and they would show it in the arena and such. And so it was a great way for me to learn more about not just the matchup, but the game and talking to all these assistants. The reason I brought Joey up is there was a certain point where I stopped doing those or at least doing them all the time. And Joey started to do more and Mm -hmm. did a great job with them. And then you were just like, hey, why don't you just keep doing all of these? So I think I was still doing at least some of them when Darvin was there. And even that aside, I always enjoyed talking to Darvin. He's super energetic and positive and He's also a really big dude, which just in its own right gives a certain amount of presence, right? This is just the way that we as cavemen and women, like yep. there's something about that presence, I think. Um, but you got a deep voice too. You got one got of them the voices. Voice. Like, yep. Yeah, so he's got so he's got kind of a mix of things. Like he's a commanding presence and yet he's he's super affable. And But I, I have been so far removed from seeing how he actually, because he's, he's clearly stepped up, you know, his coaching and done a ton of stuff since then. Uh, and... You know, I've heard some positive things from people like, like Kevin Arnovitz, who's covered the Bucks closely and said uh, what Budenholzer, Budenholzer thinks of him. So there's a lot of momentum there. And I think the thing that I like the most about the idea of it, though, is just it. the argument I used to get in all the time on 710 back in the day, whether it was like Mason in Ireland or, or Michael, and was like this whole idea of the Lakers have to hire a certain type of big name star coach. And, and I was always kind of pushing back against that. Well, like, what if they just, you know, keep hiring kind of like the best coach? And yep. you don't know necessarily if that's an assistant just because it's a name and because it's the. So I, I like and We had talked about that. You guys had both mentioned that when we first started talking about the coaching search. So that's the part of it that I like that it's more, Hey, let's see who, who, let's see how these interviews go. Let's see who's got the best ideas about defense and offense. Let's see who seems like they might have a certain presence with the players. Let's see who can connect with this up and coming generation, which does seem to be a little different uh, in the way that communication runs. And, and all of those are boxes that, that Darwin checks. And that doesn't mean that the other coaches that have been put into that group don't, uh, but the, I just I'll keep it it there for now and, and kick it back to you, Pete. Yeah, I I'm I'm really glad that we've been interviewing even guys like Adrian Griffin, who's been a really good assistant coach around the league for a few years, and and those not superstar coaches. Now I think to Darius's point, there's not really a lot of those guys out there in the first place. But the guys that we have interviewed, Alex Jensen, uh, that like yes, those are the in terms of just good basketball coaches. Those are who we should be interviewing. We also need a leader. We need somebody that like we need to go in during the summer as a collective organization and put in a ton of work. We need to do a lot of work and a lot a lot of focus on the little things. And I think that having a galvanizing force behind that is important. Ham's background is also largely in player development. That's true of Atkinson as well. And I think that the work that happens over the course of this summer is going to be important with respect to how this year goes. And one thing that stands out to me about Ham, this is a bit of a leap of faith, but if you look at the coaching tree for Budenholzer, it's very impressive. He had a staff a couple of years ago with with Snyder and Ham and Taylor Jenkins, the coach from the Memphis Grizzlies. And so there is some encouraging, you know, kind of secondary information there. But D, at the end of the day, a lot of this is a certain degree of a leap of faith or kind of inference regarding coaches. But that whole idea of just being 
the best guy for the job, not a superstar coach or anything, and somebody who's going to show up and can even be on the court with the guys. I think that has a value too, is that idea of like, Kobe had some great stories about his time with Ham and Ham's workouts where he'd try to post up Ham and Ham's this big, physical, bruising guy. That idea that a coach can get out on the court and show them, I think that has value too. So just all of this kind of, again, this is part of the reason why Ham feels like the right guy to me. He does. Mike said it well when he said that he checks a lot of the right boxes. Yeah. I'll be interested to see what happens and on what timeline that that it happens. Right. And so we're nearing the end of May. The draft is what, the middle of June? In between over the next two or three weeks, like even though the Lakers don't have a draft pick, I imagine that they're going to continue to hold workouts. They're going to continue to to look at guys because the potential to always find your way in to the draft is always there. And with the Lakers recent history of finding diamonds in the rough and just good players late in the draft or undrafted, right? And this goes back a long ways. I would imagine that having someone hired in advance of the draft is an idea I would support, at least. I don't know where the timeline is internally, but but I think that that would be a good idea. And I don't want to say the sooner the better, but giving a, a guy a little bit of runway so that by the time that the draft comes, it's not just like, oh, well, here's a guy potentially that we're going to pick who you're not familiar with at all, who you weren't in the building for, and you're relying on notes from other people. Yeah. And you're just getting situated yourself. It's like your first week as coach. Yeah. Yeah. And and so, and also too, like I'd love for a hire to be able to come in, see who is currently on the Lakers staff and see if any of those guys want to stick around, right? Or what they think about those guys. Like a guy that comes to mind to me is Phil Handy, who is very well respected across the league and has done a lot of great work with a lot of Lakers players in terms of helping them develop. And like I'd hate to lose a guy like Handy, particularly if there's time to have a a new head coach, like have dialogue with him and, and see if it is a right fit for that guy to stay on the staff. Right. Because it's not unheard of for certain coaches to just find kind of like find their way to stick with a team over years and years and years. Like I remember the defensive coach that was on the Pacers staff and he was on like Larry Bird's staff and then he was on Rick Carlisle's staff and then he was on Nate McMillan's staff. Was that Finch? Yeah, I think it was a different name. But but I'm just saying that like there are some assistant coaches where it's just like, yeah, you're with the team for a while and you might outlast the head coach who's there. And so I look at Handy a little bit as potentially being one of those types of guys, but but we'll see. Yeah. Um cuz I cuz personally like I have affinity for Phil Dan Burke. Dan Burke. Dan Burke. Dan Burke. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And then there's there's also a bunch of younger coaches right on every staff and these are the guys that I think of when, you know, a head coach gets let go and the head coach a lot of times now sometimes it's the organization but has brought in some of these young guys and it's the guys that are in the film room it's the guys that are on the back bench and Mm -hmm. you know so the two guys in the film room like drew anthrop uh, is a terrific coach john pastoric who actually he moved up from the film room to player development um and doing some advanced scouting and then um and then evan 
uh, Orzelek, like also the newer guy in the film room. Quentin Crawford's been there since Frank Howard. I'm like, these guys are all super smart basketball minds. And then that's always interesting to me, too. Once a new coach comes in and those conversations happen where, okay, you know, how many guys do you have that, that you really love that you think are super essential? Um, and then, okay, well, have you, do you know these guys? Cause a lot of times the coaches, there's the fraternity goes deep and you'll, you'll see these guys, um, like in anything, like a rookie might know another rookie, right? Where, yeah. or like a younger assistant, I know young, it's just like a peer thing and they've got, they've come up through the coaching ranks. So, um, I would be, I'm curious to see and, and hopeful that some of those guys are, are able to stick around because I think they're all really good coaches. I hope so too. And I think that part of the difficulty of not having a coach and being in this circumstances, those guys are kind of up in the air. Are they going to be a part of the next season coaching staff or not? And when trying to get the best work in done over the course of the summer, that's just another reason to have this wrapped up by the draft or or as as soon as it can be without rushing the process, right? And so there's value in taking your time, but there's also in getting value in getting it done. And the sooner we can get to a place where it's like, this is our group, this is our crew, let's go to work, the better. So, all right, we'll be back uh, tomorrow. Let's see if Golden State can close it out tonight. But until then... You've been listening to Laker Film Room Podcast. We'll catch you guys next time. James has got it in low to McHale. McHale wants to turn his double team. Just pass out of front, broken up by Worthy. Tip to Magic. Worthy dies on his belly. Magic scores. There's Magic, got it. Magic fires. It's in. The Lakers win the game. The Lakers win the game. Three seconds left. Van Exel to win it. It's on the way. Kobe Bryant, 48 points, 16 rebounds. With his eighth block shot that ties an NBA Finals record. A lot of Laker fans sticking around for this. You're seeing something that's very rare indeed. A Laker to get MVP chance in Boston. Boston. Of all places. Are you kidding me? Kobe. Hard to believe. Are you kidding me? Unreal. Are you kidding me? Lakers looking to push. Ryan spinning in the lane. Back for Gasol. Pretty pass. And it's back to a three-point game. Kobe Bryant, picked up by Bell. There's the move. Two, one, miss it! Unbelievable. It's over. Shot clock now to five. Bryant. Yes! And that was a little tough to Albert Gentry. That insult to injury, Kobe. I mean, what a shot. I mean, you can't defend that. Are you kidding me? 2.1 seconds remaining. Denver a foul to give. Jokic. Trying to disrupt Rondo, he puts it in. Here's Davis, 4-3 in the win. Oh, it's good! Anthony Davis has won it for the Lakers! James again. Oh, he hits another one. LeBron James putting together a closing quarter against the Nuggets. This historic 2020 NBA championship belongs to the Los Angeles Lakers. The Lakers conquer the bubble, and banner number 17 will soon hang in the rafters.